What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Elevate Experience, the podcast about overcoming struggles and adversity and how that relates to addiction, recovery, and health. I am your host and the CEO of Elevate Addiction Services, Angie Manson. And I'm Dallas Terrell, co-host and life intervention counselor at Elevate. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's jump right in. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Elevate Experience. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Monica Klein. Monica Klein is the founder of The Identity Brand, a full-service branding agency. She brings to the table 26 years of real-life, hands-on experience in branding and marketing, sales, and public relations. The start of her career was working for a Fortune 500 company, working up the ranks from a marketing manager to vice president. She credits her success to the knowledge she has gained by understanding cultural differences in business, having traveled to 43 countries and conducted business in many of them, all while managing multi-million dollar budgets for clients, pushed her to evolve outside of her comfort zone and excel early on in her career. Today, she is seven years into being a business owner. She reflects on what success truly means to her. It is not about a title or dollars, quote unquote. Her success stems from her real-life experiences that has shaped her into who she is today. One of Monica's mottos is that you must always be evolving. Born and raised in Southern California, in 2013, she made the decision to relocate from her home of Newport Beach, California, to the energizing New York City. She knew she was ready for the next level of growth, left the comfort of her long-term position, and opened up her own business. She rolled up her sleeves and signed up for her real-life lessons on life, love, business, and grittiness that only New York City can offer. Monica has been featured in many publications and has a mile-long list of accolades, but nothing could prepare her for where her life was going to lead after a whirlwind romance that led to marrying a full-fledged alcoholic and prescription drug addict. She recounts how her life was literally flipped upside down by someone else's addiction, a world she knew nothing about. All right, guys, so that's Monica Klein. We're so excited to have her on the show today. We can't wait to dive into this story. We hope you guys enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Monica. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you both. And we're excited to have you here. You're our first guest that has been outside the norm of uh, struggling or overcoming addiction. So I am really excited to get your perspective um, and your story from a different angle that we haven't gone into yet. Yeah, you know, when I was I was putting my notes together to chat with you, I really, um, one, it made me nauseous because reliving a lot of what happened, coming from a different perspective, I feel like it opened my eyes to what really goes on in the world of addiction. And I mean, I, I can't even, I got, you know, touched the, just the tip of the iceberg, but looking at it from an outsider's view to somebody that I was, you know, so close with, that's my husband. Um, it was brutal. It flipped my world upside down. So I can't even imagine what it does from the addict's perspective or what, what that train of thought is or what happens, what triggers that. So, you know, looking back now, I've, I've done a lot of reflection. I've done a lot of therapy. I did, um, I've done a lot of different things to try to make sense of it. Because I will say, I really felt like it was my problem that I could fix him. I could fix his addiction until I really learned that, oh no, I can't. It's his, it's his demons that he has to deal with. So it's been a rude awakening to say the least. And just what it does to your loved ones and how it really can torment and tear people apart, a family unit, you know, a marriage, um, friends and people looking in that think, oh, they have it all together. If only they knew behind closed doors how ugly and nasty of a disease it really is. So that's, um, that's where my story starts on, on this escapade I went down. Like, no laughing matter. I mean, it was like the most intense moments of my life from hiding in my closet whenever he was using or drinking excessively to having um, 
people at my front door. I, so I, I live in New York City, not currently, but at this time I was. So I lived in what's called like a white glove concierge. So boutique building, you have 24-7 um, security, concierge, your doorman. And they would just ring up to the apartment to let me know if somebody was coming over, you have a delivery. So I got in really good with the early morning crew. And so they would warn me after a certain series of events happened when he was coming in, which, you know, it could be four o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the morning. And they would let me know how bad he was based on his demeanor walking through the door so that I would have time to escape via the, the back stairwell of my apartment. Um, wow. I had three doors down. I had a hotel that had me under an alias and had my credit card on file. So I would grab, I had a go bag at the door. I would grab my go bag and my cat carrier. I'd grab my cat, shove her in my carrier, and I'd literally race out the back door as he was coming up to the apartment. So um, it was some interesting times to say the least. So with that, Monica, I want to back up a bit and find out how you actually got into this place because I assume you didn't get into the relationship um, either while he had an addiction or was hiding an addiction? Like, when did you find out? When Did this happen before or after? Um, you know, he, it was, <laughs> I go back to when did I really realize there was a problem? So we had a whirlwind romance. Um, I met him while I was on a girl's trip. I was vacationing in Mykonos in Greece. Nice. And you know, you, it's gorgeous. I mean, like, yeah. what a beautiful place to have, you know, a location romance, if you will. Um, a group of us, you know, most of us were all single and, and we're there. And I met him like two days before the end of that trip. And, you know, you're on vacation. There's bottles of wine flowing. You're letting your hair down. And I'm like, that's vacation. And when I met him, I noticed there was an excessive amount of drinking, but it was fine wine. So in my head, I didn't equate that to alcoholism or abuse or anything. And he lived in New York. I lived in Newport Beach. And so we dated long distance for quite some time. And it's easy to mask that when you're not in your everyday day in, day out, your routine, you don't know. So it was a lot of, you know, FaceTimes or Skypes. And finally he came to California um, he's like, it's time to make a decision. And he knew I had always had a dream of moving to New York. So, you know, I look back at the situation. I'm like, would I have gone if I had never had this passion to go to New York? And I was ready for that next level of my life to start. So unbeknownst to me, we had never talked about it, which ding, 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 first sign. Yeah. Um, he proposes. And that started this tumultuous journey I went on. So within 30 days, I moved, I packed up my life from California and I relocated to New York City. Um, it was a whirlwind. My going away, I had an official engagement party with everybody, but my, my last night in Newport Beach, he flew in to escort me back. And um, funny because today is actually the seven year anniversary of this date. So it popped up on my Facebook memories and I'm like, wow. And then I'm talking to you about this. So super the interesting how there. it comes full circle, right? Right. So that evening, you know, we'd have these amazing weekend jaunts. We'd have these great dinners. And I always thought, wow, he just drinks a lot of great wine. He's got great taste. <laughs> Fast forward. The night of a handful of my closest friends, they're like, we're not letting you. I was getting on a red eye from LA. They're like, we're not letting you go with that one final hurrah. We went to one of my favorite restaurants and he was excessively drinking, I don't know, vodka, tequila, whiskey, everything, all he would drink everything under the sun. And that night is the first night I saw the violent temper come out. And so I, didn't, I just, I swept it under the rug. I looked the other way. So we finally, we get in the car, we get to the airport, we land in New York, it's a weekend, and I wanna unpack. I had shipped a lot of boxes, I had my suitcases, my cat, and like, let me settle into my, my new lifestyle. And he said, no, <clears throat> on weekends we go to brunch. I declined, 
I grew up with, you go to brunch after church on Sundays, you wear a dress. I didn't understand the New York lifestyle that this meant a party brunch. This meant it was an all day, all night, all morning affair. It's New York City after all. So right. <laughs> um, I, I declined, I stayed, I unpacked, I took a nap, I got myself situated. And about dinner time, he doesn't show up. And so I'm calling breakfast. He still is not home. My first weekend in New York, I'm newly engaged. And he finally comes in in a fit of rage. And it scared me because I didn't know if it was alcohol or if it, if it was drugs. And he had this blank, evil look. And he had cleared out. I moved into his apartment with plans that we were going to go and find and look for a place to make ours. And I had organized everything in my closet and my drawers. And in a fit of rage, he destroyed and threw all of my stuff out into the hallway. And at that point, I'm like, I made the biggest mistake. I still decided to look the other way. We had started planning our wedding. And he was pretty on um, good behavior, but we were both traveling extensively at this time. So the next instance was the night of our wedding. Um, again, excessive, excessive alcohol. The excessive alcohol use was always there. And when I say excessive, I'm, you know, three, four bottles of wine, followed by an entire bottle of whether it was whiskey or vodka or tequila. So, you know, three to five bottles of like constant drinking. That's excessive. And I did not, it, I'm like, I didn't understand. I'm like, okay, a glass or two at dinner, but I'm like, are you kidding me? So this was like this whole new unveiling of what he was really like so fast forward to our wedding night the same thing the temper came out and i started researching and ordering books and hiding things and not telling my family because they're in california i'm now you know living in new york with him i didn't know who to turn to so um we were traveling he was on a business trip i was on a business trip and he was flying back from Hong Kong. So that's a long flight, super jet lagged. And um, there was two instances that were back to back, like within the same month, he came in and he was white as a ghost and he collapsed. So I called 911, ends up in the hospital. I never got the full story from anyone as to what really happened. Um, but I knew something was wrong and I'm not a quitter. <laughs> I am like, I am going to find out and help him and heal him and make him, you know, understand that he has a drinking problem. I didn't realize what I was up against. I thought I could heal him. I thought here we are newlyweds. I can do this. Um, so I took on the task of thinking it was my responsibility and thinking that I had the power and little did I know I had zero power in any of this. So um, after this one long trip, he came back and he said, let's go to lunch. And we went to this beautiful, cute little bistro. And, and that was the beginning of the end. He, um, he proceeded to drink, I don't know, six, seven, eight vodka martinis. Um, he always carried a little um, man purse. And I never really knew what was in it. And he would always hide it. And up until this point, I didn't know. And I wanted to know, but I'm like, isn't that part of marriage is just the trust. So I think so. He proceeded, <laughs> right. I'm like, I'm like, Oh my goodness. So he proceeded to just consume and consume just two martinis at a time. And he started to get irate again. And, and up until this point, he had had some, some issues in public places of causing scenes to the point where police would show up oh, and I would, be the fast talker to get him off the hook and drag him, carry him home, have my doorman help me bring him upstairs to our apartment. Um, yeah, there was, there was a point where it was, it's humiliating, but I just thought I could fix it. And, you know, where I have a, a doorman and those luggage carts that you see in the hotel, yeah. and they were helping me with him. And then, um, I don't know, he got out again or something. And then he would always go, we, we lived in the busiest part of Manhattan. And I always wanted to live in like a very residential, but I understood the positioning of this apartment. 
because you walked out the door and there was literally 10 bars right in front of you across the street. Like anything you wanted was right there. Gotcha. So the accessibility, the, um, the doorman had, there's cameras in the elevators and he had urinated himself in the elevator, crawled into the apartment and literally threw, stripped down all his clothes and his shoes and threw them in the dryer. And all you can hear is the clunk, clunk, clunk. And whenever I hear that, like it takes me back to, to that moment of how, how bad he was, how bad this disease was. So back to the lunch with all the vodka, I, I put my foot down and I just said, I've seen you really cause a lot of, a lot of issues. So I'm going to excuse myself from this lunch. And I walked home. He showed up about four hours later. And again, that look, and I didn't know if it was alcohol or more because I could never get into that bag. And I questioned myself if I had trust issues because of it. And I'm coming from a world where I haven't known anybody that had an addiction. So I was very green. I was very, very naive. And he walked in in a fit of rage. He beat the living pulp out of me. Um, he literally yanked pieces of my hair. He left me black and blue from my whole upper body and my face. Um, I ran for the door and I hit in New York apartments. You have a wall panel. That's a screen. So I just pounded while he was pounding on me. I was pounding on the panel. Um, I hit the emergency button, which alerts the entire building and the police showed up. So I was saved. He was handcuffed to the stretcher and he was taken to jail. Good. That, Jeez. that was my eye-opening experience that I was dealing with an addiction. My addiction to fix him and his addiction of whatever it was. So I just decided that was my moment of truth. And I went through that little man bag. I went through everything. And what I found, I'd never encountered. There were needles. There were drugs of every color, shape, and size that I had never seen. There were mail-ordered mail prescriptions. There were, I don't know, the wristbands or the, the elastic that you tie to to use a needle. I just right, know when right. I get my blood taken, there were boxes of this stuff hidden. I went through shoe boxes. I went through suit pockets. He always had a little baggie in that man bag of all of this stuff. And I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to turn to at this point. So I started to Google. I turned the pills over and I taped them all to a piece of paper and I wrote down what the codes or the numbers and letters and I started to Google what each pill did. I think I got tired when I got to like 32nd pill. Wow, that's and a lot of pills. I'm like, I was unveiling all of this stuff. I'm like, what in the world am I dealing with? What am I up against? Um, I did not press charges. I thought I could fix them. Even after all of that, I thought I could fix them. So, um, gosh, it's like, this is a short time span too, of from start to finish. We were married for three years. So all of this happened in a three year time frame. Wow. Um, he finally, he gets out of jail. My building won't allow him back in the building files restraining order against him. Um, it was hell. He was begging, crying. I'm going to change. I need help. You're finally the person that, you know, I feel I can open up and share this addiction with. Um, I know I drink too much. I do it because of all these past hurts, hurts I had never even heard about, you know, and I'm like, what did I just do? So I forgave him. Um, I allowed him back in. I appeared in the Northern District of Court in Manhattan, and I pled to the judge that what he did was under the influence and that that's not who he was as a person. Right. They signed, they, they released him off of the restraining order or whatever. So he could come back home. And I made him promise to start this road to recovery. I researched every type of rehab addiction 
center, everything I could find, counseling, um, and he pulled the wool over my eyes so well. I was attending Al-Anon meetings nonstop. I was doing private counseling with somebody that was used to working with loved ones of people battling an addiction. And he would come home, I would have dinner, I cleaned the entire apartment of any liquor. Um, he then, we went to his doctor and I asked for a list of what medications he really needed to be on for health purposes. You know, he's, he's 10 years older than I am. So there was some heart things and some other medications. I'm like, so which medications and what do they look like? So I know, and I had, I carried a list in my wallet with a picture of what they were and what they did for his health. Like I became like an overnight babysitter is what I felt like. I mean, I say that lightly, but I don't mean it that way. I had no idea when you're dealing with an addict, if they don't want to change that, you can't do anything. It was a very rude wake up call for me. So about maybe three months, we had maybe 90 days of a, what I thought was a sober experience. Um, and found out it wasn't. And he finally admitted to me, he's like, I like feeling this way. I like the high. I like drinking excessively. I like how it makes me feel like I have. And I just at that point, I'm like, this is not my addiction or my battle. Um, my mom at that point was, um, she was at her end of life with cancer. And so I just decided to put all my focus. So sorry. It's okay. Okay. I decided to put all my focus towards my mom and I was flying back to California. I was flying back, um, rather frequently, like almost every 10 days I was back in California for, you know, five or six days to help my dad care for her. And then I'd go home. Um, I was building my company during this time. So I had client obligations in New York. And so I was really going back and forth and I was trying to decide if I wanted to be known as a failure in my marriage. And so again, like another chance. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right. So, so, and my mom on her deathbed, the last thing I'm going to tell her is I'm, I'm married to an addict and I'm going to get divorced or what has even transpired. Um, so at that point, I'm like, it's my mom and it's my business and, you know, I'll monitor him. If he's being good, we'll figure it out. I'm still in counseling. I'm still at Al-Anon. I couldn't tell him I was going to Al-Anon meetings because he would fly off the handle. Um, it got fast and furious pretty quickly. And I had a client that um, was flying to Asia to go to, uh, I was, I was managing a lot of different types of brands at that point. And so she had just landed a pretty big contract and they wanted to fly her in. She had the wrong visa. So she flew from the Midwest to New York and at New York, they stopped her because she had the wrong visa to get into China. Oh, wow. So she calls me, it's middle of the night and she's like, oh my gosh. And you know, she's younger and I'm very much more of a mentor towards some of my, my younger clients. And, I said, just let me put you in a car. Just come stay at my apartment. Um, you know, I'll walk with you tomorrow. We'll go to the embassy and we'll get your visa straightened out. And you can get on the next flight. I'll call the, the people that are waiting for you on the other end. I'll take care of it. Don't worry, just come. So, you know, you live in Manhattan. You don't have a lot of space. So I had an alcove in my apartment, which was my home office. And um, I had a pullout bed for whenever, you know, I had family come to visit or somebody single that came to visit, they would stay there. It was like one bedroom two bathrooms. So I said, you can stay here for the night. We'll take you tomorrow. I'll go and, and get you through to the visa process. So the visa process was a nightmare. She ended up staying in my apartment for four nights. Oh man. And you know, I just said, it's like, what, what's that saying? Um, house guests are like fish. They start to stink after three days. <laughs> I've um, never heard that one. I've never heard that either, but that's good. I like that <laughs> yeah. one. So I, the last night she was there, we finally got her, her stuff situated. And you're probably like, Monica, why are you sharing about this client's visa issue? <laughs> um, you know, she's young, she's beautiful. Um, she's very, 
in awe of New York. She had never been to New York. I gave her a map. I said, you know, I introduced her to some of my neighbors that were her age. And I'm like, go have fun. You're here for a few days. You may as well make the best of it. So I'd come home from a meeting, did my nightly routine, went to bed. He had come home, went to bed. I was asleep by the time he had come home. And I gave her a key to the house and to the apartment. And I didn't pay attention that night to his demeanor when he came home. I didn't know if he was sober or drunk. And at that point, I really stopped caring yeah. to like get up and like, you know, wipe the vomit off the toilet seat or put him in a cold shower or whatever that was. Some nights he would pass out on the floor, just drunk on the hardwood floor. So um, I went, I remember he wakes up and he goes to the bathroom. We have a bathroom in our bedroom. We have a bathroom in the hallway. And it seems like an hour goes by and I, I don't hear him. Don't see him. He's not in bed with me. Um, the entire apartment is dark. I have a fairly large apartment for New York standards. So I walk all the way down the hallway and I hear noise coming from my office and he's having sex with my client. And they were both so drunk. I never knew if they were out together or not because they came back close in proximity to each other. But she, and you know, I'm a brand new business owner. I've never shared this story before. Um, and I know he's got an addiction. She filed rape charges. And he claims he was so high that he didn't know where he was or who he was with. Wow. So that moment, I'm like, you can take down my livelihood and my business and really hurt everything that, that I have built my career on for 20 plus years. Um, so I had a long talk with my clients, with her, with her family. Mm -hmm. um, I had to go to the police station. She dropped all the charges against him. Um, it was another rude awakening as to what this addiction was leading to. So at that point, right after that, my mom passed away. And he, of course, came with me to the funeral in California. And um, he tried to be on his best behavior. And at you know the memorial that you have like after everything and your, all your friends and family and you know, everybody's sharing stories. And we had like this huge, we rented out this restaurant and obviously pre-COVID. Um, and yeah. there was, there was like a hundred people at this reception. And one by one, the stories of his inappropriateness and his drunkenness were coming to me at the cusp of like my mom's death. So that was the end. I just said, seeing my mom pass and seeing how, what I had hid in the secrets, um, I just said, I'm done. I, I tried. I thought I could help. I thought I could help cure him, but I couldn't. And I think looking now in retrospect, our loved ones, like, how do we help? What do we do? So all of that, like, really took me down a different path of, do I even want to drink? You know, I enjoy a great glass of wine, especially if I'm eating like a pasta or something. But, you know, I'm like, it really made me stop and question. I never overdid it, but it made me really stop and question what kind of person I wanted to be and how I wanted to, how I wanted to handle these situations. But it opened up my heart to those that are struggling and understanding that they may not understand like what the next step is. And with him, I have to say, he didn't want the help. He enjoyed the lifestyle of being an addict. And he completely, right before he, he moved, he moved out, right before he moved out, those were one of his last things he said. He's like, I like it. And I'm like, I don't. So it, it ruins you. So he moves out. And um, I then find out, you know, because there's lies and deceit and secrets, it's like everything started to blow wide open. Within a few days, I find out, you know, he, he was very well-established 
Um, and I don't know if it was through what part he kept so many secrets, but there was a point where, you know, he had no money. And then I was digging into what I could, whether it was my 401k or my retirement or anything to help, not just, you know, we're married. That's the guilt right there to help with whatever we needed, not just your basic living expenses, but above and beyond. And then it was the keeping him afloat in whatever he was doing until he moved out. And then I find out he had not paid our mortgage for like seven months and it fell on my lap. Here I am filing for divorce. Just my mom just passed and now he's leaving me in financial ruins. So it was like a, um, a rude, rude wake up call that what addiction, fortunately, I'm a smart girl. I didn't let him know, you know, where I had certain things and I was able to stay where I was living. I was able to pay off the debt, but you know, still to this day, I've changed my phone number because I used to get phone calls from all his creditors and all of the people he lied to. Um, it's, there's a lot of deceit and nastiness that goes on behind the scenes. And, and, you know, and I know he was, I know he was using different types of prescription drugs, which I never understood can become addictive. I don't know what was going in those needles, but I know there was like medical grade supplies of boxes of needles hidden in his closet. And I think I don't ever, I don't, I don't ever want to know what was, what that was because what I saw was very ugly and very dark. Wow. <laughs> Hi. Yeah. Wow. That, that's a lot, Monica. Thank you so much for sharing that. Wow. I, I probably have an idea of what those medications were, but we don't have to talk about that. Yeah. Especially based on the behavior for sure. Yeah, but it's not like it makes it better, whether it's a needle or a pill or, uh, you know, a drink. It's at the end of the day, all the same leads to the same place. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I think during this this. Short blip, if you will, you know, of my life being now at 50 years old, I'm like, I had to go through that because I learned that the pain comes to teach us not to punish us. And when you grow through that pain, how much stronger it makes you to be able to pay it forward and help those that that do want the help, that do realize that they have, you know, something that they're battling and, and what do you do? Where do you go from that point? You know, so I really hold on to the fact that it was, it was a huge lesson, but it taught me a hell of a lot. It, um, Never in my life did I think I would encounter that, you know, and from the outside in, nobody knew what I was going through. I was, I was masking it because I was embarrassed. I was humiliated and I felt like a failure. I felt like I picked this person to marry that duped me in other words. So, yeah. And that's something we see all the time. I mean, we have parents who are like, you know, I thought I raised my kid, right? Same thing. They hide it. They cover it up. Obviously, uh, relationship-wise, we see that a lot. So that's very common. Uh, for some reason, you guys take it on as, as like somehow it's your your fault or your responsibility. It's not somehow. It's part of the process. It's unfortunate and it sucks and it's part of the manipulation that goes along with addiction. That's why we yeah. like to say, you know, if we could help one person, it's really helping like 10 people around them because of all the wreckage around the individuals. And it sounds like you went through an extraordinary amount of wreckage and being, like you said, so green, you know, you didn't know the signs. You didn't see it coming. This just like smacked you out of left field. It wasn't like you had seen this growing up. So you were familiar. This had to be like just blindsided. 100% blindsided. And, you know, fast forward, I've been out of that for, um, it's been four years now. And I would package up everything I was finding, whether it be, you know, fake prescriptions, whether it was all the pills that I taped to a piece of paper, literally taped the actual pill and wrote the descriptions underneath them. Um, All the photos from the police report, like, 
every step of the way I documented what was happening because it didn't feel real. And I put them in this package and I would FedEx them to my dad at the time. And I would write really big, do not open only in case of emergency because during some of his, you know, really, really, really bad episodes, there was, you know, a lot of death threats. There was a lot more abuse that did transpire. And he, at the end said, you won't get out of this marriage alive. I'll make sure you're not. So I had proof. And so my dad recently passed away. So as I was cleaning out his house a couple months ago, I found the boxes. Wow. And I opened them and I'm like, wow. I'm like, it was intense. I could only go through like the first couple of pages of police reports, of pictures, of what was transpiring. And now in retrospect, like I said, I finally have come to terms that it was not never something that I could fix. But you're right, the wreckage and, you know, the, I have two girlfriends that I told amidst, they got the, you know, the top layer of what was going on. And, and I made them my emergency contacts because in case something happened, you know, when I'm running down the back stairwell, when he's coming up the front elevator, I knew I had to get out. It was life or death when he was that enraged with, and I didn't, I didn't grasp the concept that addiction can go hand in hand with the anger and the violence. I just, I never put those two together. I thought they were standalone things until I dealt with it. And yeah, it was a pretty crazy bad time of my life. I'm curious, were those envelopes still sealed or did your dad look at them? never once looked at them. Thank gosh. Thank gosh. Because I can only imagine for a father to see that, like that would have been devastating. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, I was so thankful he didn't. Um, I feel he had an idea. Right. But I never wanted him to work. He worried about me enough as it is. I never wanted him to know the extent. He just knows when he asked why I got divorced. And I said, I had to to save myself. That's all I said to him. And I think he understood. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I guess I know before, you know, before we got onto the podcast, you were talking about writing a book. Is the envelope going to play a role in that book? Yes, it is. Wow. Okay. Yes. It's, um, yeah, it's very, it's very therapeutic. It's healing. And there's some days where I feel like I've completely healed from this, but then, you know, going back and revisiting when I, when I opened that box at my dad's house, granted it was super emotional from, you know, cleaning out the house for both yeah, of my parents. Of um, but looking at the, the documents were like proof that this really happened and could it have played out any different? I mean, if he had wanted help, you know, I, I definitely wanted to lead him to help, but at the end of the day, it wasn't my choice. So, but yes, the book is, um, the book is going to show, share all of the ins and outs and all the red flags that I didn't see because I didn't know, I didn't know they were red flags. Now, right. oh, I can't tell you, I have a stack of books in my closet that I've, you know, I've, I'm, a, I'm a student. I always, if I'm up against something, I want to know what it is. And so I, bought every book, every book on how to help addicts, how to, how to everything for, to help him, to help myself. And I never, and you know, he never thought it was a problem. He just, he really didn't. And until you see the, the wave of destruction that they leave and fast forward, um, somebody on social media that um, grew up with him reached out to me and they said, are you okay? I don't know who I never heard that person or met them and they said we also went through the havoc of of this and so it was um the fact that they were they were trying to see where he was in his life at this point and instead because i was very prominent on social media they found you know through my last name his last name um they found me and they just wrote me kind of like a a cryptic warning Mm -hmm. And then at that point I was open because all of this had happened. And so I, I responded 
and we had a phone conversation about pretty identical things that had happened. So I wasn't the first. Yeah, that was yeah definitely not the first time the those behaviors probably showed up and you know I think that's like you said you can't fix someone that doesn't want to be fixed and you kind of said that a couple times where he said I like this this is this is what I want to do and I love when you're like well I don't (laughs) well I don't yeah well thank you. And that's that's the part problem. I mean, we're fortunate because the majority of people that come into the program have admitted, or at least to some degree, have met their people that are trying to get them there halfway and saying, "Okay, I'll get help or I'll get treatment." But when you have somebody who's completely unwilling, um, you know, it, it's a it's a fine line. And Dallas deals with this a lot of times, where you're you're trying to help, but it becomes enabling, and like, and if you don't know. You don't know. You think you're like doing all the right things to help the situation. It's really like furthering the situation because you're not drawing the line of saying the situation's not okay. And you know, you yeah. don't know what you don't know. And it's a, it's a whole different kind of beast than your average like problems in a marriage. It's a whole different kind of thing. Yeah. I remember when I was like, if you don't get sober, that's it. I am leaving. And he said, you would leave me at my lowest point. And the manipulation, I'm like, some of the things I'm just like, I reflect and I'm like, wow, how did I fall for that? Like, it was, what do you mean at your lowest point? You are, I really felt if I would have just turned another cheek over and over and over and over, I would have ended up dead or right there alongside him to anesthetize the pain that he was inflicting and I just kept fighting. I just kept saying, I, this is not the way my life ends up. So it's, um, yeah, I'm fortunate. I'm very blessed that it was, you know, a little over three years. I could not imagine somebody that, that struggles with it, you know, ongoing or what, where he's at now. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a huge blessing. Like three years was, I bet that was a long three years, but like you said, at least it only was three years and that you were able to turn the corner and see the truth and not, you knew that that wasn't for you, you know, as, as hard as that is. And you didn't let the manipulation continue. And I think that leads me into another question too, of like, did you find the Al-Anon helpful for you? Like having that, that outlet or just kind of having that different perspective of maybe I am enabling or how can I not be at the receiving end of this BS? Um, yes, I, Al-Anon was useful for me. It made me feel like I wasn't alone. Right. Um, you know, I, I felt like I could, there was people that were relating. I never got up and spoke. I never shared my story. I sat way in the back. (laughs) I kept to myself. I was the last in and the first out. Mm -hmm. Um, it was. It was an eye opener to see how many people were really struggling. And it really, it just, it made me realize to take a step back and, and, you know, I, by nature, I'm just a compassionate person, but it made me realize to, to have more compassion for those that are struggling with something, especially an addiction, but to also be aware of who wants to live that life, who wants to be stuck in that addiction. Like you have to like, feels like it's a, like I knew for him, it was a choice. He, he right. liked it. So, so yes, Alan on it did for, for that season of my life, you know, I would, um, I would pretend I was going to a business meeting and I'd walk down fifth Avenue in Manhattan and I would turn the corner into this church and I'd go sit in the back and, you know, nobody knew where I was going or what I was doing. And I will tell you after I left those meetings, um, there was a rush of emotions that would happen. It was just a wave that would come over me. And, and there were some points where I didn't feel I had what it took to push through, to keep going. And, you know, there was lots of moments, nine out of 10, let's just say six and a half out of seven days. He wasn't home. He was out doing what he does, whatever it was. Some days, you know, there was never a set schedule. There was, um, comes home at four o'clock drunken whatever else or comes home middle of the night or maybe the next afternoon there were several of those days and 
I was never to ask where or what he was doing. Um, but you can just see it. You can, you see, you see the deterioration that started to happen. And, and I looked back at some pictures of when I first met him compared to where he was when we parted and he probably aged like 15 years. Yeah. Wow. It was, um, yeah, it's, I'm glad you were able to get out and he wasn't able to track you down or prevent, you know, like the divorce or the separation. Uh, I mean, at that point, he was just like, whatever, leave. I mean, how, how did how did he amicably let you go? Or was he like, good, now I can just no, but no accountability? Um, he was good. No accountability. He called me boring. He said, because I like to work and stay home that I live a very boring life. <laughs> I'm like, wow. <laughs> yes, that's one way um, to look at it. Yeah, responsibility yeah. is boring, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of, I mean, I chuckled now. I chuckled then. At that point, I'm like, okay, I'll take it. I will take it. Um, and then, you know, I heard that he really ran rampant with more, I'm sure it was more drug and alcohol abuse. Um, lots more women involved. And, you know, his his power in this was and i reading and researching and learning i think it made him feel like he was superman he was untouchable and you know he's 10 years older than i am and he was able to to fake out people if that makes sense yeah makes and, sense you know these young girls would flock to him in these you know cd all night nightclubs in new york city these underground places and I'm like, it's not my thing. So because of that, I was boring. So it was, it was an easy, he just, he realized, you know, okay, this girl is not going to come on my way of what my lifestyle is. And she wants me to get sober. And that's the last thing I'm going to do. So yeah. Yeah. I've heard a lot of follow-up stories as to what happened in those days, months, years after. And so, yeah, I'll share more about that in the book. Yeah. Oh, nice. Well, I'm excited to read and hear about that book. But I think mainly what I just kind of wanted to say was I'm proud that you were able to have way more compassion for yourself than somebody else, you know. And I think that's like, to me, the big takeaway is like we are always more important, you know, especially when all this could be going on. Like, yes, it's nice to be empathetic or sympathetic and have compassion for someone we care about. But at the end of the day, we, we are more important. And when those lines cross, we always got to retreat back to us. Yeah. So kudos to you. And, and yeah. it reminds me of, and I think we've heard this a lot lately, the, the analogy of the air mask. It's like, you can't help someone else until you help yourself. And it sounded like, you know, you had gotten to a point where you weren't caring for yourself as much as you always had been as a strong, independent uh, businesswoman who was killing it in life. This probably really kind of blindsided you and you took off your, your oxygen mask to help someone else and that never works. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's eye-opening, yeah. Well, maybe we fast forward and talk about where you're at now, Monica, and how beautiful life is now that we don't have to deal with that uh, BS anymore. Uh, <laughs> the silver lining, know, right? A, the silver lining, absolutely. It's been it's been a journey. You know, I I stayed in that apartment, and it was ultimately never where I wanted to be. I always wanted to like live in more of a residential community of, if you can, in Manhattan. And so, you know, I mean, the line that if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere is so true because that city is hard. <laughs> I mean, I will just tell you, it is like it instills grit into you. So I pulled myself up. I had some, you know, at the same time of this, I'm mourning the loss of my mom, who I was extremely, extremely close to. Like we talked 20 times a day, yet I never let her know what was going on in the background. So I'm faced with, you know, what's my new reality? And and I really went deep into what I wanted to paint my future to look like. And I went all in on my business. You know, I always go all in. But at this point, I'm like, okay, divorced, 
my mom isn't here. My dad was living in California. I'd come back often to check on him and see him. We talk every day as well. So life started to progress and, you know, my business started to take off one by one. I was just, I started to network how I wanted to network, not at the late night, all night bars and clubs of New York City. I was going and joining all these female entrepreneur organizations. I started to really make it my own path. And that just really quickly skyrocketed my business, which was great. Um, so then I just dove right back into being a full-on workaholic. I mean, that's my addiction. Yeah. The healthy addiction, though. Very healthy. That's a healthy addiction. one, yes. There's not bad yeah. uh, results from that. I, you know what? I always say it doesn't feel like work because I love, I love what I do and I love who I work with. So I'm very fortunate and I'm very cautious of who I work with due to this experience. I look for to make sure there's a lot of you know similarities to make sure it's a great partnership. So fast forward, um, life was just, you know, trucking along. I'm, I'm growing. I am doing New York on my terms. And then COVID hits. COVID was probably, and I don't want this to sound wrong, but it was probably the best thing for my business. You know, I was shifting to really launch a lot more digital businesses. Yeah. So amidst COVID, like I had more clients than I could handle at that point. So I'm working more and I saw my dad slowing down. I would, you know, FaceTime him and I'm like, Oh, he's slowing down a little bit. He needs help with learning how to cook. And he never, he, my mom did everything. Right. Right. So I made the choice. My dad kept saying, when are you going to move back? And I'm like, no dad, my business, I'm climbing I'm doing really well. And he's like, when are you going to move back? So I finally called him amidst COVID. And I said, you know what? Now's the time. I said, I'm moving back now. So I'm in California. I've been here for a little over six months now. Um, and I was, I found a, a house because I needed to find a house big enough to have home office and have my dad and have space. So we were on top of each other. And there was something about living where he was, where my mom passed away. I just, I couldn't bring myself to do that. Right. So I said, I can live near you or I can I can move you in with me. He's like, no, I want to live with you. So I um, rented a house with the intent of renting it for a few months to get my feet wet in California again, move him in, hopefully possibly bring him back to New York, which was ultimately my goal, or just plant roots in California again and go back and forth between the two. So July 1st was my big move date back to California. Um, he had a gallbladder attack and died June 28th. So two days before... I was supposed to fully move back with him to take care of him. Um, he passed. And so there's a bigger plan out there. And if I had not have gone through what I just was healing from, still healing from, it could have derailed me. And now I'm here with both of my parents gone. And, you know, I live down the street from where they lived. So I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. So I know I'm here for a reason. So I'm just, I'm kind of living a nomad lifestyle wherever I'm supposed to be is where I'm going to go. And the journey has been super healing. It's been very optimistic. I've met some amazing people that I knew were supposed to come in my life through this time. So, you know, there's, it's not always going to be a happy ending. You have to go through all these, these, things in life that strengthen you, make you more resilient. And going back to what I said earlier, it's like the pain comes to teach us not to punish us. So I really hold on to that. And like, what's the lesson and how can I grow and how can I pay it forward to help others grow through these experiences? So that's where I'm at today in whatever January, 2021, that's where I'm at. And I'm excited to see where this leads me. I don't know if it's going to lead me back to New York right now, I don't know where it's going to lead me, but I'm open. That's okay. Well, welcome back to California for yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And I think a lot of people uh, have experienced this, including myself as well. But COVID really, by removing all outside interferences and sort of forcing us to just like be home with ourselves and create a new world, I think it helped a lot of us really go to a new place of healing and, and spirituality and learning. And we just had Joe on um, this week and he shared a similar experience. Like it just sort of forced all of us 
to get to a better place. Whereas when life is normal and there's distractions, it's very easy to stay busy doing all kinds of stuff without ever having to do the work. And I think COVID really forced a lot of us to really do the work in layers that we didn't even know was there. Yeah. Amen to that. That's like so true. It's, um, you know, I've gone deeper into what makes me tick inside and asking myself really what kind of woman I want to be, what, what example I want to set. Um, whether it's, you know, spiritual healing, I'm deep into meditation, um, reading, just solitude, peacefulness. It just, it's really, I used to be a super hyper person, <laughs> but it's really grounded me. And, you know, some say that comes with age, mm -hmm. but I also feel it comes with life experiences. And when you really learn how to, what, how to focus on what the lesson and how to grow from it, how to grow through it. Cause life isn't always going to be, you know, puppies and rainbows. My gosh, that would be boring. But yeah, when you go through these trials, you need to, you need to figure it out and learn. So yeah, I'm excited to see in the future who I can inspire by what I've been through. Um, we all have a story and I feel it's our duty to share that story to inspire others that are going through anything similar. So, Absolutely. Well, and hopefully this podcast can reach more listeners who might be going through something similar and to realize they're not alone and their experience is not um, their own either. And they may reach out to you for mentorship or help in this area because your perspective is completely different than what our perspective is. And your help in that area is, is I think, more deep than what we could offer. So I'm really glad you're out there and willing to do that. Absolutely. It's, um, we all have that gift, you know? So yeah, as you guys, you have the gift of helping people get through recovery and addiction, which is amazing. Seeing just a glimpse of it. It's, it's not an easy or pretty task. No, it's by not. Any means. <laughs> yeah. well, I think you I highlighted it perfectly. Way. Like our burden oftentimes is also our gift, you know, and yeah. Yeah. we got to grow to give somehow. And it's not always fun and it doesn't always feel good. But here we are, all three of us now sharing our experience and hope and strength and saying to anyone listening, that's going to be okay. And it's going to work out yeah. and love yourself first. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, during this, and I think Angie, you and I have touched on this before and during this pandemic, seeing the the drug abuse that is just escalated to it's it's frightening and you know they need to know that there's there's help whichever direction they're coming like there's so many of us out there that that want to lead them back down the path if they so choose to take that path so yeah yeah i mean we talk about uh very often you know the overdoses and the abuse being at a sky high since the pandemic but the other side of that is the people that are trapped in homes with the addict and people don't have eyes on them because they're not able to go to work. They're not able to see their doorman, you know, COVID or shelter in place has prevented eyes on helping individuals like that. And they're literally trapped in an apartment like your New York city apartment with this addict full time. Who's, you know, the stress of the, the situation is just escalating everything. So, um, yeah. besides people needing help from addiction, we need to help the people that are dealing with the people in addiction too. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't imagine how terrifying it would have been if I had gone through that. If we were in a shelter in place situation, I don't think I would have made it out. I really don't. So it's, um, yeah, we need to reach out, especially now with, with what's, what we've been living through for what, almost a year. Yeah. I never thought we'd have a COVID anniversary and I'm super pissed about that. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. I'm not celebrating yeah. March 6th or whatever the the shelter-in-place date was. Oh, my gosh, right? I'm like, how is it coming up on? I just remember thinking about stocking up for 14 days. Yeah. I'm like, okay, 14-day lockdown. What is the Toilet lockdown? Paper. What do you need for 14 days? I, like, got puzzles and board games. I'm like, who needs that for 14 days? <laughs> Who knew it yeah. would be, uh, you know, a year later and we're still in the same situation. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope we're reopening here soon. 
and the people that need the help can get out and get that help. And, you know, whether it's, whether it's by coming to Elevate or whether it's through some online programming, I mean, there's, there's so many tools out there. So you have to just go out and do, do your research or ask for it and it'll appear. All right, good. So with that, Monica, what can people reach out to you for? I know you help us with our social media, with our uh, ad campaigns and that sort of stuff. What other things are you doing that people can reach out to you for help for? Uh, I handle full brand. So it's called omni-channel branding. So it's everything from beginning to end. So you have 22 touch points when you build a brand and it starts with, you know, your brand collateral, your basic, your logo, your website, but then it goes into technology. So we use technology to really drive your brand. This is more in the digital space that we're living in. And then of course, you know, social media content, um, social media management, Facebook advertising, public relations, um, the cute little chat bots that pop up on your websites or on your social media that you can engage in really, you know, if somebody's on your Facebook page and they reach into your messenger, that's actually a piece of technology. That's not Dallas sitting behind a keyboard answering questions. So everything that has to do with, with automating and getting your brand um, out there using technology is what my branding agency does. Yeah. And uh, we started using it. That's when you and I connected. And um, what I loved about you is your expertise in the area and your attention to detail. And it's like, I don't have to tell you what to do. You're telling me what I need to do. And I appreciate that because this is a, a field and a realm that I've never been in. And so that's why I have an expert. So I love and appreciate that about you. And I would think in today's times, like this is the new world. Like if somebody's trying to either launch a product or save their business or boom their business, this is the route that has to be taken. And you and I are uh, in a, in the same group. And, you know, yeah. they, they say over and over again that social media, this is the wave of the future. So people need to jump on it and really embrace it because avoiding it's not going to get you it's very not going to get you very far in today's times. No way. Yeah. Even if everything Most opens definitely. up, this is the new world. Don't miss the boat. It, absolutely. And, you know, social media is a tool. I know today we're seeing it kind of demonized in the in the media or what's happening in reality. And, yes, um, that side shouldn't be happening. So, social media is meant to really grow businesses, small businesses specifically. So and I've always said if you're on social media, you know, from – personal perspective, that's great. But when Instagram really went from a curated feed of showing vacation or what you're having for dinner or your outfit of the day, you know, it's meant to drive traffic to monetize. If you are not making a dollar amount on Instagram alone, we're not even talking any other platform, you're not using it right as a small business. So I really take small businesses and show them how you can do that. And then you add, you know, the rocket fuel by running some paid targeted ad campaigns. And that's a very detailed process, as you know. And um, yeah, you can see your business go to what, what the big brands were doing. You can do that as a small business in under 12 months. So it's technology has given us the ability to scale so much faster, which means dollars in your bank account. And at the end of the day, that's freedom. So, so it's a good thing. I love that. What a, what a great saying. <laughs> I know. I'm like, sign me up, but I kind of already am <laughs> under the umbrella. <laughs> you are. <laughs> yeah. No, that's so cool. And I think, you know, just as we're kind of wrapping up here, I think the last thing I wanted to point out was how social media is a, is a tool and that through social media, you could find Elevate or Angie or myself or Monica and you could use social media in any way that is helpful to you. And it doesn't have to be this negative attention seeking type of thing. It could be something that saves your life. And I just kind of wanted to point that out as a segue to saying, Monica, where could the audience find you on social media and your website? What is, tell us about that. Where can we find you on those things? Everything is um, uniformed for me. So it's identity brand by Monica Klein. Um, so social or every social media platform and my website is identitybrandbymonicaklein.com. So great. And we'll put the links below uh, so people spell Klein correctly. Yeah. It's not <laughs> yeah. like Calvin Klein. -E, the German spelling. 
Gotcha. The, okay. the proper way, right? <laughs> yes, my dad would always get upset when it was misspelt. <laughs> exactly. Well, Monica, thank you so much for being vulnerable with us today and sharing your story. Um, I know that it cannot be easy to to relive those things. I'm glad you've you know had the time to work through a lot of that, and it's not so fresh. Um, it helps us be able to look at it a little more objectively. But still, I don't think it, no matter how many times you go through that, it's any less hard like re-experiencing it and reliving that over and over again. So thank you for bearing your soul for us. Aww. You, it always is so natural speaking with you, Angie. I just, I feel like we are, um, I don't know, long lost sisters or something. I'm just completely vulnerable. I'm like, hi, Angie, blah, here you go. <laughs> exactly. Same. And sometimes we have other people in our meeting and I'm like, uh, they don't need to hear this stuff. <laughs> Monica, I'll call you later. <laughs> right. Thank you for having me. It was actually, it's, it's good. It's therapeutic to talk about it. So, and you guys are, you know, you're safe. So thank you. Yes, thanks so much. Yeah, of course. I'm glad it could uh, be safe. I've, people have told us we're easy to talk to, so I appreciate that. And just, you know, kind of to say the same things that Angie said, I really appreciate your vulnerability. And your story is going to help people 100%. And that is, that's that's what feels right, you know. That's kind of the takeaway and the silver lining. And it was also very nice to meet you, Monica. Nice to meet you officially too, Dallas. Yeah, here we are. I've heard yeah, so many like things about you. you and. They were all true. In the best ways. Yeah, in the best ways. I, yeah, the best ways. That's how we so open-ended. It's like, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> okay, well, I have to jump off to a client meeting, which is you. Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to wrap up and hop in my car, and we'll talk. Okay, talk in a bit. Thanks. Bye. 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 All right, guys, that's our show for today. We hope you found some value from listening. And if you did, please share with someone you know or love. You can find us on social media. We are at Elevate Addiction Services. And if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please call our toll-free confidential 24-hour helpline at 833-33-SOBER or visit our website at elevaterehab.org.